continuing today in our overview of Romans in chapter 8, verses 9 through 25, the spirit of adoption. And we've been following the thread of thought as Paul writes to the church in Rome. And he begins by saying that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but instead eagerly obliged. He's obliged to a gospel that is the power of God for salvation, the wrath of God revealed against men, the righteousness of God revealed in making propitiation for His people, ransoming them back to Himself, purchasing our lives with the lifeblood of Christ so that the one who has been eternally just may also be the justifier for Abraham believed God and was reckoned to Him as more than belief. It was reckoned to Him as righteousness, the very power of God on display. Having been justified through the gift of faith, we then rejoice, literally we boast in the hope of God. For indeed we were dead. Born in the image of Adam, coming from dust and going to dust, but in Christ we live because indeed in Christ we die. You know your identity. It's an incredibly pertinent question today. Do you know your identity? What it is to be a Christian? Paul says it begins with the baptism of the Spirit. That a saint is one who has died with Christ in the Spirit, was buried with Christ in the Spirit, and is risen with Christ in the Spirit, all by the glory of God in order that they may walk in the newness of life. Life which is described simultaneously as slave language and its love language. These two things can be simultaneously true because enslavement to Jesus Christ and righteousness is unlike any other enslavement that has ever existed. A profound identity from life to death, the creation of something out of nothing, all done by the Holy Spirit who buried us with Him in death, who raises us with Him in life. Men are enslaved to their own being whether it be to the flesh or the new creation. In Romans chapter 8, verse 7, Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Out of that realization that no matter how hard he tried, he could not overcome himself. He cries out in Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, and says, What a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And there at the dark night of the soul and the hour of desperation where a man sees himself for what he actually is, Jesus Christ stands in his glory, waiting with the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The result, Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 8, is this. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But that is not you. If indeed you belong to Him. For while those who are in the flesh cannot please God, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But 
If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. All of this is true in the spirit. As a matter of fact, when kind of drawing up this very stark comparison, this very strong parallel between two groups of people that are both enslaved to their own identities, to those that are in the flesh that cannot please God, and those that are in the spirit who do please God. It is all predicated on a gigantic if. Those who cannot please God, those who can please God, all dependent on a conditional statement. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact, not if in opinion, not if in hope, but if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Greek has three very strong prepositions that concern the idea of place and where things belong and what they are doing and where they're going. Ek, in, and es. Ek is the preposition of direction. It has a meaning of motion into or toward something. S, the preposition of source, meaning motion out from something. Both ek and in have an opposite continuance in view. But end on the other hand, sits right in the middle. This is the one that Paul employs. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh if the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Greek in is the preposition not of direction, not of source, not of coming out of or going toward, but instead the preposition of location with the primary idea of being at rest, of being placed and being still, of being fixed and being permanent. Not coming and going, not blowing on the wind, but steady and well set. It's, it, it, the kind of way that you would use it in English would be if you were talking about your position on a particular subject and you said, well, okay, let me tell you what you had to say. Now, let me tell you where I'm at. Let me tell you where I get in. Let me tell you what my place is here. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. He says, you are not in the flesh. You are not in this hopeless place where you cannot please God because you are not in the flesh. If indeed the spirit of God is in you, if he is placed in you, if he is resting in you. You want to ask the question, where is the saint? The location of the saint is 
They're at rest in the Spirit. And the Spirit is at rest in them. Therefore, they have an opposite reality to those who rest in the flesh. While those who rest in the flesh are hostile to God, those who rest in the Spirit and the Spirit rests in them have been moved from being an enmity with God to having affection and love and a heart for God. They can, indeed, are being submitted to God. They are pleasing to God and they have life and peace. Yes, even boasting in the hope of the Lord. And I think when you consider what Paul has to say about this reality that is so crucial, that is the very definition of what it means to be alive in the kingdom of God, in a day of rampant identity crisis and self-doubt, how are you to know if this is you or not? Because we're living in an age of such crisis of absolute truth that not only as a culture are we claiming that because of a preference, men can become women and women can become men, but we're claiming that as being such a level of truth that if you don't get on board and believe that as being real, you're an ignorant troglodyte and a bigot. And these are things where you can do a blood test and check for chromosomes and see right in front of your eyes what the reality is. And yet the spirit of our current age is one where you're expected to get on board with accepting something that is obviously in complete contradiction with a physical reality that is directly in front of your face. That is a spirit, not of the truth, but in the acceptance of a lie. <coughs> the reason I bring it up, because you say, well, doesn't that fit better with chapter one? Well, it does. In direct application. But the re reason I bring it up is this. If the spirit of our day is so separated from the concept of absolute truth and pressing us as people to join along in those kind of delusions that are apart from things that we can say if in fact about. If our society is having crisis in these things. How easy is it for Satan to come against our people when the proof lies in a spiritual reality that cannot be examined under a microscope? In a day of rampant identity crisis and self-doubt, a truth that seems to be so fluid that it changes with the moment, and you have such an important concept as you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, how do you know? How do you know that's you? How can you say, along with Paul, you, however, I, however, insert your name here, that Brian Williams, however, is not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, because, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you? How do you? No. 
the Gospels tell us. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God. Let me tell you how you don't know. You don't know because you can list a list of things that you have done. That's not how you know. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. No one's ever seen God. Well, then how can we know? How can you know that the Spirit of God dwells in you, and therefore you are not of the flesh, and therefore can please God, if God can't be seen and no one's ever seen Him? How can you know? Are we not all just sitting around kind of hoping that it's going to work out in the end? The answer, according to John chapter 1, verse 18, is that Jesus Christ has made him known in some manner. The gospel of Jesus Christ has made an unknowable God knowable to us. I want to drive that point home because I would caution you here. It is important to focus that the litmus test of the reality of the new creation is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit himself. For this is an era, an area where legalism easily abounds. And people start making lists to reassure themselves so they can know. Well, well I know because, you know, I confess Christ. I, I know because I was baptized. I know because you know, I walked the aisle. I know because, you know, I told my preacher what I did and he said that I was saved. And I told my parents what I did and they said that I was saved. And and, and, you know, now I, I, and I go on mission trips and I proclaim the gospel. I've seen other people say, and, you know, I serve on the right committee. And I, I always sing, uh, you know, the resurrection cantata and, and on and on and on and on. This is a place where legalism abounds. Humans love to check boxes. It makes us feel confident. It makes you look important. I mean, if you ever want to look important anywhere, all you got to do is walk around with a clipboard, staring at it and muttering to yourself. And people immediately think you're the busiest guy in the room. We love it. But in an age where we're being highly pressured to reject concrete, physical, absolute realities, then how do we hold on? How do we know? In fact, when we're talking about the indwelling of the Spirit of a God who has never been seen, and the answer, friends, is Jesus Christ. It's not baptism, it's not church membership, it's not being a part of the right home study group, it's not Jesus-y things. It's Jesus Himself. And nothing less. The gold standard test for the salvation of a human being is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You are not in the flesh if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's why in 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, the apostle wrote and said, By this we know. By this we know. And friend, let me tell you something. You want to take a bunch of anxiety off your plate? Know this. <laughs> know this. And if you do, by this we know. That we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. 
so then. Because if this in fact is true, then the implications in reality are massive. In Romans chapter 8, verse 12, Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. If, in fact, this is true of you, that the Spirit of God dwells in you, so then you have an identity that is both debtor and children. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Because the if-then is true about you, then the so-then is also true. You're a debtor. And you're a child. cry out, Abba, Father. At that point in time, once again, and Paul's been doing this a lot here lately, you seem to have this kind of screeching contradiction. Because debtors don't cry out, Abba, Father. Debtors cry out for relief. Forgiveness. But here you have this statement, if then, so then, debtor, child, crying, Abba, Father. Debtors don't cry, Father. What I would tell you is this. There must be a type of freedom that results in slavery without ceasing to be freedom. I mean, this is what Paul is teaching. You were a slave to this. You've been set free to be a slave to this. There's a type of freedom that yields slavery without ceasing to be freedom. There is a type of propitiation that yields debt without ceasing to be payment in full. You know, man, I haven't ever heard of freedom that brings about slavery and is still freedom. I haven't heard about propitiation, the paying off of a debt that brings indebtedness and is yet still payment in full. Well, friend, that's because you haven't heard the gospel then. Because this is exactly what the gospel does. All of this is accomplished in the spirit. A spirit that, according to verse 9, we are both in and who is in us. A spirit who, according to verse 14, not only is in us, but leads us. A spirit that is not the spirit of slavery and fear. Now, wait a minute, I thought, if you were enslaved to unrighteousness, you were set free to be enslaved to righteousness, and yet this spirit is not the spirit of slavery and fear. Yes. Yes. Exactly right. It is the spirit of the adoption of sons. 
Look, concern the redeemed's relationship to God. Scripture has all sorts of stuff to say about it. Short list, short one. God is to be feared. So we're fearful. God is gracious. So we're grateful. God is generous. So we're thankful. God is master. So we're obedient. God is giving. So we are indebted. This is all true. And yet none of this is the spirit that defines our relationship with him. And if you get off on one of those tangents and says, okay, this one's what defines the relationship with him, you will end up with some twisted doctrine before it's all said and done. Our relationship with him is defined not as one of debtor and create and creditor, though he is our creditor and we are in debt. It is not a relationship that is defined as the subjugated and the taskmaster. It is not even a relationship that is divine, defined as one whom out of duty to gratefulness must be served. Instead, it is Abba Father. You have received not the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but instead the spirit of adoption as sons. Friends, the depth of God's grace is always more than we first realize. Once again, in chapter 8, in verse 14, Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Friends, if this is in fact true for you, then not only are you the children of God, but you have become the children of God in a very particular way. There is a defined progression that Scripture says happens to all who are called children. There is a defined progression, a way that it is going to go. Your expression may be different. Everybody's experience is a little unique. But there are certain realities that define salvation in Jesus Christ that are always present. And the big one is this. You were something, and now in Christ, you are something completely different. What we were, Romans 1, verse 32 Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's who we were. Knew exactly what God said, didn't care, was running as hard as we could in the opposite direction, regardless of the consequence. As you'll never, you, you'll never talk someone to Christ. You'll never talk someone to Christ on the fear of hell alone. Oh, it's a component, but you'll never get them there on the fear of hell alone. It requires the glorious loveliness of the Savior. 
not only were we those that pursued these things, but we encouraged others to do the same. What we are is the children of the very God we hate. So how do we get from where we were to where we are? And Paul says the answer to that question is by adoption. It's a compound word in the Greek that's got so many syllables in it, I don't think I'm up for trying it this morning. But it's, it's two words. Son to place. The concept of adoption in Scripture means to place one as son. To, to place one as daughter. Guys, adoption is, is not just an interesting facet of the new creation. Adoption is necessitated by the manner in which the new creation is brought into existence. The way that God, it's not that God said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Um, we're we're going to do this whole new creation thing. We're going to do the gospel. We're going to do salvation. And I really like the concept of adoption, so we're going to incorporate that in to what we're doing here. No, the manner in which God brings forth the new creation produces an adoption. You can't do it without it happening. It is the byproduct. It is what is produced by the manner in which he has chosen to save his people. To place as son. You see... The indwelling of the Spirit, as we've seen. The indwelling of the Spirit is the means of the new creation. That's how the new creation comes to be. is when the Holy Spirit indwells you and makes you something new. And that Spirit, that Holy Spirit, Scripture tells us, is the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit in you, that is indwelling you, that is the regenerative means of the new creation, is nothing less than the Spirit of His Son. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul writes about it this way. This is when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Thus, adoption makes that by which is not naturally a child, it makes them one's own child. Now, notice what I said there. I did not say that it makes one which is not naturally a child a child. This is incredibly important grammatical, grammatical difference did not say it makes one which is not naturally a child a child. It makes one which is not naturally a child one's own child. One's own child. 
this is as personal and intimate of a reality as you can have. It doesn't just make you some kid. It makes you his kid. Because that's the spirit of his son. It is glorious and he is jealous for it. it. Makes you his son. When he looks at you, you've been placed as a son because the spirit of his son has been placed in you. Because adoption is so critical, inseparable from the nature of the gospel, it is no wonder that adoption is so attacked. You never see one that doesn't. Never. Satan hates it. I mean, you can only put it with just a handful of other things like the testimony of marriage that, I mean, you just put with a handful of other things where you so seerly, clearly see a testimony and a picture of what the gospel looks like in its working. You know, adoption in our culture, it's what you always, you know, it's what you always tell your little kid brother or kid sister, right, when you want to get after them, you were adopted. Like somehow that's supposed to be derogatory or something. Or how people think of adoption, you know, as being a little scary, a little outside of the box. Must not be able to have kids on their own. Risky. Of course it's risky. It speaks of the gospel. There is only one son begotten of God. Every single other member of the kingdom was placed as one. That's you and me, buddy. Hey, let me let you know a little secret. You're adopted. Praise God. Praise God, man. Hey, let, let people... People want to think it's a little weird? Let them think it's a little weird. The angels thought it was a little weird. As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter writes, says, concerning this salvation, this very one, by which you've been given the spirit of adoption as sons, not the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, by which you cry, Abba, Father, this one. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. Can you imagine how that conversation went the first time the cat got out of the bag? Can you imagine what it must have looked like in the midst of the unfallen host when he said... As for you, on your belly you'll go. The seed of the woman will crush your head. And they all went, what? Those who were once far off 
have been brought near. They have been placed as sons and daughters of the living God. Because that's all they can be when the spirit of his son dwells in them. The spirit bears witness to our spirit. That's what Paul said. He said, his spirit that's in us is bearing witness to our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. That's not other men bearing witness to you. And let me tell you, people come to me and they say, I'm having a crisis of faith and I don't know if I'm saved or not. Buddy, you, what you'll never hear out of Pastor Brian's mouth is, oh, no, you are. It'll be okay. Uh-uh. It's not men that bear witness to you whether or not you're the child of God. It's the Spirit of God in you that bears witness to whether or not you're the child of God. And I don't tell you. You tell me. And you don't tell me. I tell you. I tell you. You want to know that you're born again? When the spirit of his son in you bears witness to your spirit, literally as intimate and a personal of a thing as can ever exist, it's all happening in you. Then you know. This comes directly from God. There's no intermediary. There's no angel that shows up to tell you that you made the cut. That the paperwork's in. We're just waiting on the notary. That's not the way this works. The way you know you're adopted is when the spirit of his son is in you. And therefore, you are his child. It is humbling. It is powerful. Spirit is the thing that seals us, marks us out, proves what we are. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes to the church there, and it's a little wordy, so you'll have to bear with me here. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 15, Paul is speaking to them about his desire to come and, and to, to bring more of the word of God to them and, and you know, being hindered. And Anyway, here it is. I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you sent me on my way to Judea? I was vacillating when I wanted to do, or was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given his Holy Spirit in our hearts as a Guarantee. You know how Paul says, listen, Corinthians, you know how I'm established in Christ? How you're established in Christ? How we together are established together in the body of Christ? You want to know how that works? 
how that works is that he has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's the spirit of his son, folks. He's not running out on his son. What you have when you're sealed in Christ is not uncertainty. Instead, it is a clear statement that something is genuine. He has given us his spirit as a guarantee. You need to understand how this works. Because you can put a guarantee on the side of any old box you want. What this doesn't mean is we'll guarantee. We'll make good on it. It's not good. That is not what is being spoken of here. It's not what's being spoken of. This particular word in the Greek, arabona, it's a financial term. It's not a guarantee as though we guarantee the product is going to perform. It is a first installment, a down payment. Probably the best thing that you could call it in the English would be earnest money. And the concept is that I've entered into covenant with you. And in doing so, I have put a guarantee. I've put a deposit. I've put a down payment. I've got skin in the game. And because the skin is so valuable, because I have already, I'm already in with the spirit of my son in you. There is no way I will forfeit on the covenant and lose what is already invested. Because what I have given you to this point is of such inherent value. The very life of my own son. That he may be in you and he may seal you and he may guarantee you that you know for a fact that I'm good for the rest. If I shepherded your soul in death with him, if I bound you with the Spirit in a baptism unto his burial, then you know that I will come with a baptism unto his resurrection. Having already so heavily invested, you know that the rest is guaranteed. Paul also writes to the Ephesians. He says it like this. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ. Might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also. When you heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation and believed in him. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If what God put up as earnest money on your salvation and mine was nothing less than the spirit of his son, you better believe he'll come for all of us. So let me tell you something. Salvation in Jesus Christ. It's not a doubtful thing. It doesn't float on the wind. It doesn't change with the season. 
Now listen. Listen. I'm not saying that you can't be attacked. I'm not saying that you, if you've ever had any doubt, that means you're not saved. Don't put those words in my mouth. I'm not saying any of that. I'm not saying that you might not need to sit down and hammer it out. Because Paul has a lot of stuff to say about testing yourself to see if you're in the faith or not. But see, that's the reality. Jesus Christ is so eternally enlightened that in him, an invisible God that no man had ever seen is able to be known. And if his spirit is in us, his spirit confides in our spirit that we are the children of God. Because I'm not saying that you don't need to go check, because if you doubt, by all means, go check. But let me tell you something. It's a pretty straightforward check to make. Because I never have to look too hard to see if my spirit's in me. Self-evident. Neither do we have to look too hard to see if the Spirit of Christ is in us either. Because man, if he is, then an infinite God that could not be known is known to you. You don't miss that. The guarantee of the Holy Spirit is not simply a promise to fulfill all the things that God said that he would fulfill. It is a tangible installment. It's really there. And if you're his, then it's really in you. And you're not in the flesh. And don't, don't be riddled with the anxiety of doubt. Don't. Consider yourself. Does the Spirit of God bear witness to your spirit? If he does then you are now fellow heir with Christ and all that comes with it. Even the suffering part. Verse 17, Paul says, If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified with Him. You see, that's the thing, is you can't separate salvation from adoption because salvation comes from the indwelling of the Spirit who is the Spirit of His Son. You have been placed as a Son. Consequently, the Spirit of His Son is the Spirit of a Son that was more than willing to suffer for the glory of the Father. It's the Spirit of a Son. It's the Spirit of the Son's inheritance. It's the Spirit of the Son that is willing to suffer for the glory of His Father's name. That may be kind of discouraging to you. It shouldn't be. Considering the manner of your adoption, you are well equipped for whatever the Lord will ask of you. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know 
that the whole creation has been groaning together under the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Friends, you are not in the flesh, and it's a good thing, because those in the flesh cannot please God. Can't do it. Doesn't matter how hard they try. And look just up the page, the old wretched man that I am bit, Paul tried harder than all of us put together. Can't do it. But friends, you are not of the flesh. You're of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, and if He dwells in you, the Spirit that you've received is not a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the Spirit of His Son. The moment it happened, you were placed as a child of God. Child with an inheritance, a child with a guarantee because he has already spent so much on you that he's not about to waste his investment. Oh, it's the spirit of a son that suffers for the glory of his father. But it is the spirit of a son who is well equipped to do so. It's not a spirit of doubt, it's not a spirit of fear. It's not a spirit of vacillating back and forth as Paul told the Corinthians where I can say yes and no at the same time. Every four days I need to get resaved because I'm just not sure that's not what this is. It doesn't mean you don't need to check, but it's a pretty straightforward check. If he's in you, his spirit will confer with your spirit that you are indeed the child of God. Let me tell you what, don't let bad theology, the attack of Satan and the weakness of the flesh cause you to live in anxiety that would make less of the certainty of Christ's salvation than how certain it actually is. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Be free. For freedom, Christ sets you free. I thought he enslaved us. He did. So you could be free. Friends, there's a freedom that leads to slavery that does not destroy freedom. There is a propitiation that leads to indebtedness that does not destroy the payment in full. These are the things of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you check yourself today and say, you know what, all I got is just a clipboard with a list. And I, and I, I look to my spirit and, and he says, hey, you know, will you bear witness to me that, that I'm the son of God and all I get is crickets? Then, man, you need to hit your knees. Hit your knees. He is faithful. You will boast in the hope of the living God. Let's pray.